Welcome back. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired. This week, we're exploring food and faith and what it says about who we are and what we believe. Just before the break, we heard from Benjamin Zeller, an associate professor of religion at Lake Forest College. He shared how meals that accompany feasting holidays like Thanksgiving can be different and at times difficult for some Americans, including those who are vegetarian and vegan. I was vegetarian for uh, for many years. It's amazing how much at that holiday to not eat the quote-unquote proper food is an affront. It's a threat in some ways. We used to make it, we still make actually, a uh, sort of a nut and cheese loaf, which is wonderful. You could tell people were very uncomfortable about innovating with this new food. And the fact that some of us were choosing to eat it instead of turkey was particularly, I think, what was threatening. If it was just a side dish, a new side dish, people just would have looked at it. But the fact that this was presented as a bona fide replacement for the tradition was seen as affronting. Eating is one of the ways in which we define our identities. If I see someone else rejecting my eating and uphold some other food way as being a central way to be, that can be very threatening, perhaps almost as much so as diversity or pluralism of religion can be threatening to some people. And in the same way in which if, if religious identity is so central to many people, to see that someone else has such a radically different religious identity, which is not mine. Vegetarianism and veganism are not religions per se, but Zeller found that for some people— Changing their eating habits to abstain from meat or other animal products can resemble deeply meaningful religious experiences. He says these decisions should be taken seriously by others. So I did a study of vegetarians, vegans, and locavores. So locavores are people who choose to eat only food produced in whatever they're defining as their local region. I went into it thinking, well, this is a great way to sort of think about sort of food ways on the ground. What I discovered among these people that I spoke with, these oral histories which were produced, and there were actually conversion narratives. When I asked people who had become vegans or vegetarians or locavores, to tell their story about why they made these choices. What they told me were conversion narratives. And the conversion narratives took very typical form. Some of them were the very passive sort of conversions which religious study scholars associate with the uh, the image of of Paul, you know, the, from, from the Christian New Testament, Paul on the road to Damascus, sort of struck down by sort of this external power where suddenly he feels like he has to have his conversion. So some vegans in particular, vegetarians, would describe sort of these moments where they encountered something outside of themselves, which forced them to radically change their food ways, their food practices. The one which really I so vividly remember even uh, a decade and a half later was a person who told me that they had gone to visit a slaughterhouse on a class field trip in high school. And as they stood in the slaughterhouse looking at the animals hanging upside down with the blood dripping and the viscera on the floor and the, and, and the animals being cut up and packaged and coming out the other end as meat to be eaten, this person felt as if they were so struck down by this, they would never eat meat again. The idea of a powerful experience, either one which happens to you or you, you do to yourself, is shared among many people who choose to change their food practices or food ways. And that makes sense because it is a conversion in certain ways. Most of the people Zeller interviewed for this study were non-religious. Their food choices, though meaningful, were not dictated explicitly by religious belief. 
but a vegetarian diet is a significant part of the religious beliefs of Jains. Jainism is an ancient, non-theistic religion whose practitioners mainly reside in India, though it's unclear what the global population is. There are 4.2 million Jains living in India. Now, while its origins are obscure and it has no clear founder or founding date, Jainism does have sacred texts. The tradition encourages Jains to live according to certain principles in order to liberate their souls from the cycle of reincarnation so they can achieve eternal bliss. As part of their spiritual practice, Jains do not eat meat, animal fats, gelatin, eggs, honey, or root vegetables. Zeller says this is connected to the Jain concept of ahimsa, or nonviolence. The way in which what we eat is an ethical act, and by choosing not to eat other living creatures, it's the way in which eating is how we define our relationship with people around us, and with, with not just people, with other living creatures. And that fits within the Jain theology. Our next guest, a Jain himself, feels the tradition's food restrictions are about mindful eating and letting oneself focus on the more important things in life. It's the idea of eating to live and not living to eat. In our society, it's really easy to think of food as a pleasure and a pastime, and it is. And it can be enjoyable, and it should be. But it shouldn't be the focus. Mm. You know, eat healthily and then be done with your meal. Don't be don't be sitting in bed eating bags of chips. Um, and Jainism says the same thing. It says be thoughtful about what you're doing, do it, and then when you're done, move on. That's Shikhar Shah. He's an anesthesiologist at the Walter Reed Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. And he's a member of Young Jains of America. I spoke with Shah in our studio about his Jain upbringing and how that's informed his personal relationship to food and consumption. Shah started by clearing up one common misconception, that Jainism is part of Hinduism. The, the two get conflated so frequently because Hinduism's a much more common religion and, you know, most Jains and most Hindus are Indian. Jainism is, is you know, definitely not... Hinduism. They are different religions, and kind of one of the key existential differences between the two is that Hinduism is definitely a polytheistic religion, even pantheistic, depending on how you define it, whereas Jainism doesn't have a god that you pray to. It's You could argue it's atheistic or non-theistic. We pray, but our prayers are to, stepping back, you know, Jainism believes everyone has a soul, and the goal of Jainism is to be liberated from the cycle of birth and death, not too dissimilar from Buddhism. And so when we pray, our prayers are to the souls that have liberated themselves. We're not asking them to intervene in our prayers. We're more meditating and reflecting on their qualities in the hope that we can one day be like these liberated souls. And I just want to clarify, when you describe the embodiment of a soul, do you see that soul force in food? Yeah, excellent question. Jainism believes, you know, in reincarnation. It's this idea that when you die, you can be reincarnated as a human or as an ant or as a cow or as an apple. And so we see every living thing and living thing is defined phenomenally broadly as having a soul. How does the Jain tradition teach about food and nourishment? Jainism does have a lot of, you know, rules and regulations when it comes to food, and it's easy to get bogged down in the details. But I think the best way to look at it is to kind of step back and think about what type of philosophy Jainism is preaching globally and then how it applies to food. So Jainism, I think, is a pretty utilitarian religion. It's it's an idea of minimizing harm. Jainism doesn't say you should, you know, put yourself under undue duress necessarily. It says eat what you need to to survive and 
don't do more harm than you need to to live a decent life. Um, and the way that's applied, you know, one of the concepts we'll, we'll talk about is, you know, this idea of nonviolence or ahimsa. Um, and the way Jainism applies that to food is saying, well, there's different gradations of violence you can do when it comes to eating. You could choose to eat an apple or you could choose to eat a cow. And, and killing the cow to eat it does significantly more harm kind of globally to the world. There's, there's more negative utility, if you will, versus eating that apple. And so Jainism in that sense would say, hey, eat, you know, be healthy but try to minimize the harm. If you don't need to eat the cow, if there's no dietary restriction that's forcing you to, to eat something that causes more violence, then don't, and try to minimize that violence you're doing with your food. And so Jainism, while it does deal in relatives, there are also some absolute rules. And what are those? Yeah, and so there's a few foods or a few food items that are called a buksha that are just, like, forbidden. And meat, you know, the meat of any animal, whether it's an animal that died naturally or an animal that you slaughtered, is a buck. It's forbidden. So that's that's one of the the major ones. There's a few others. You know, honey is a, a buck, and that's one that people don't always think about. And it's because over the course of its lifetime, a honeybee produces like a teaspoon of honey. No one's going around eating a teaspoonful of honey. When you get a serving of honey, you're taking the life uh, and labor of what what might be you know, tens or hundreds or even thousands of, of honeybees. It's this idea of trying to minimize violence. Like, did you need that to sweeten your food or could you have used some stevia instead? And so that's another one of those where it's a bucks just because of the, the mass amount of violence it causes, even though we don't think of honeybees as being, you know, as neurologically um, complex creatures as cows, for example. Mm -hmm. There is some idea of scale that's in play there too. A few others are animal byproducts like leather, you know, because you can't really have leather without having killed the animal or procured it from a dead animal in some way. And then, you know, besides the abuksha, there's there's a few more alcohols on there. And there's a few activities of daily living that are on there as well that you're not supposed to do. Um, but then another another common topic when we talk about Jainism and the Jain diet is not exactly the abuksha, but the, the foods that are, are heavily frowned upon and the foods that you're trying to avoid. And these are the ones that make the popular news, as, as popular as news about Jainism gets, the root vegetables. Ah, yes, like the carrots and the sweet potatoes. And exactly. The, yeah. Exactly. Tubers. Anything that grows under the ground. And so those are called ganmul. And those are foods that, as Jains, you're supposed to avoid eating as much as you can. And so the idea, again, we go back to minimizing violence, right? So your question might be, well, what's the difference between a potato and an apple? They're both, you know, neurologically pretty much similar, and I wouldn't argue with you there. The difference is in the potential for life. An apple has a handful of seeds in it, five, ten seeds, and you're not eating the seeds. You can eat your apple, you can plant the seeds. You're not limiting its potential for life. With potatoes and with, you know, carrots and, and all these other root vegetables, onions, there's no seeds. There's no potato seed. The way you grow another potato is you take a potato and you can cut it up into a bunch of chunks and plant each of those chunks and they'll grow into a new potato. So you might argue then, and you know, Jainism does kind of argue that that potato and th what you're eating is actually limiting the potential for life. You're, you're kind of killing future generations. What kind of traditions did you, do you practice? Does your family practice here as a Jain this time of year? Yeah, I can tell you we don't have a turkey on our table. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's a buksh. What do you have? My mom's coming over uh, to come celebrate Thanksgiving. My parents are driving in. It's going to be a classic kind of Indian meal. It's all vegetarian. It's going to be, you know, probably minimal use of garlic and onion because she does like to try to keep things Jain. So we've got the chickpea curry. 
we don't have turkey, but it's not like we're lacking in protein in our diet. Mm -hmm. We get a lot from our our chickpeas, our lentils. Um, We usually have some sort of a fresh salad on the table as well. And your spinach and kale is going to give you protein. I only say that kind of foreshadowing the question I always get asked about the giant and the vegetarian diet. Which is? Where do you get your protein from? (laughs) How does being Jane influence your work as a physician? It's too easy. Uh, one, one, of the, one of the earlier sentences in the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. And one of the key values of Jainism is do no harm. The values line up, they line up pretty nicely. You might wonder about, you know, me talking to patients about their diet and like, do I tell them like, oh, you shouldn't eat meat? And no, because one of the things about Jainism that's, that's true, I think, for a lot of religions is this idea of understanding that everyone's in a different place. You know, Jainism has a Sanskrit word for it. They call it anikantvad or the multiplicity of viewpoints. It's this idea that just because you look at life through one lens doesn't mean everyone else will. Um, And just because they disagree with you doesn't mean they're wrong. And I think I take that to work with me every day. When I see patients in clinic, if they make life choices that, you know, don't agree with my philosophy, but make medically sound sense, then I have no role telling them not to do those things. What kept you kind of grounded growing up in an environment where you were faced with, I'm just going to use the word temptation, a lot of temptation because folks were consuming lots of things that you weren't able to. So when I was younger, what kept me grounded was mom said, hey, don't do that. And when you're young enough, you're just like, well, mom said not to. And, you know, she'll get mad. You get older, you start asking questions and you're given answers. And that's satisfying. So when I was a little bit older, when I was hitting middle school, I'd be like, hey, why can't we eat meat? And she might give me an answer similar to the one we were talking about earlier. Uh, you know, we never use the word utilitarian in the explanation, but it was just a, the concept made its way across. And then as I got older, when I started hitting, you know, kind of my philosophical matur- maturity and I wanted to explore things further, I would be out looking at other religions and other texts and trying to find these similarities and realizing, hey, you know, this idea of nonviolence that Jainism might preach to a logical extreme isn't unique. It's something I'm seeing all over the place. And and to get back to your question, the way it kept me from temptation is it was something I was born into, but it's something I eventually came around to accepting and, and kind of fully understanding as I matured. And so it wasn't a temptation. It was something that I made the decision not to do on my own. You grew up here. You grew up in America. You are an American. Have you ever felt conflicted between the values embodied in your religious practice and what American culture tends to emphasize? I think the only big conflict is American culture is defined by American consumerism. That's kind of what our capitalist society is, what makes America, America. And Jainism, like I hinted at earlier, is something that is defined by this utilitarian, you know, sort of minimalistic philosophy. And that was definitely one of the conflicts growing up. And even even one of the conflicts now, There, it's easy to say, well, you know, there's the new iPad out, there's the new X, Y, and Z thing out, and I want it and I want to buy it. But a lot of the Jane tenants acknowledge and recommend non-possessiveness and, and not being greedy and, and, again, being utilitarian, using as much as you need to to live and then kind of donating the rest or helping the world around you. That was Shikar Shah, an anesthesiologist at the Walter Reed Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. He's also a member of Young Janes of America. Coming up next, we learn about the Sikh tradition of Lungar and how one California husband and wife are taking it on the road. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back after this short break. 